episode 268 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log, with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by Learn the Finer Points. Use the link below to save 10% off their ground school app. With high-resolution coast-to-coast composite radar and cloud-to-cloud, cloud-to-ground lightning updated every 2.5 minutes along with always available weather products like METARs, ECHOTOPS, and STORMTRACKS, Sirius XM lets you fly confidently knowing that your weather information is available at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Check out aopa.org forward slash Sirius XM to get a two-month free trial to try these products out for yourself. Jim Higgins, a professor of aviation at the University of North Dakota. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is with Jim Higgins. You have heard Jim Higgins on the State of the Industry podcast, but this one is a little bit different, although it does kind of turn into a State of the Industry podcast towards the end. We just can't help it. Whenever we get together on a podcast, we have to talk about what's going on in the industry. But it's a fascinating episode. Uh, Jim has a great story, starting out from his love of aviation, how it was fostered, how he ended up getting fired, which you want to hear that. That's a fantastic story, and how it led him to his career and being a line pilot, MEC chairman, and now a professor at the University of North Dakota. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. And also make sure you just share this with all your friends. Like I said many, many times, go grab someone's phone, you know, do them a favor and download the Pilot the Pilot podcast. For one, it helps the podcast out. For two, you may be the like aviation and get into it as well. But Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Jim Higgins of University of North Dakota. Jim, what's going on, man? Welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Justin, always good to be here, and I sure enjoy our time together. Yeah, absolutely. This one's going to be a little bit of a mix-up. Uh, it's not necessarily a state of the industry, although if we uh, don't ramble on for an hour or two hours plus, uh, hopefully not two hours, but we will uh, we'll, we'll throw some in there if we have time. But if not, we will uh, get back together again and get another state of the industry recorded. Sounds good. Always looking forward to those. Yeah. So um, I always start out with just the same question for everyone, and it's why aviation? Was it something that you knew you wanted to do from very early age, or was this something that kind of just like fell into your lap? So my father was a former fighter pilot. And so from an early age, I was indoctrinated into aviation. And then he went to fly for the airlines and I got to uh, experience that side of it from a family side of it. And um, I just remember, you know, of course, we did all the non-rev travel that all airline families do. And uh, I was always exposed to that. A lot of his friends were pilots. And for me, the moment was probably uh, in high school when I was out at, at the airport in Great Falls, Montana, and I saw the Horizon crew come off their Metro liner. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that'd be kind of a cool job. I know my dad does that, so he could probably give me some pointers on how to get into the industry. So I kind of followed in his footsteps, to say the least. Um, but that's how I got interested in it. And, so uh, it was yeah. a Metro liner that did it for you? Like you saw a Metro liner <laughs> and you're like, yes, I want to fly that. 
It was a Metroliner, and I actually have about 1.4 time in a Metroliner that happened years later. Wow! Congrats. Uh, And uh, I don't know what I don't know what the big fuss was. It was not the it was not the nicest plane to fly. No offense to the Metroliner pilots out there. Most sensitive aircraft I've ever flown. Yeah, I've uh, yeah, I would. That's what I've heard as well. Um, (laughs) But hey, I'm glad you uh, that plane was what got you in aviation. Because without that, we wouldn't be here today. That's right. That's right. I'm out. And I'm probably dating myself as well. Oh, no, it's all good. Um, so you saw the Metroliner. You went to your dad. You just said, hey, I want to follow in your footsteps. Or was there kind of like a game plan, the presentation you've been building in your head to present to him to be like, hey, I want to do this too, rather than just like, oh, flying school. Let me go try it. Well, actually, at the time, you had to have 20-20 vision or at least get hired at a major airline. That was kind of, it was, it, it was actually a published minimum way back in the day. And, um, even, I mean, I know it sounds funny now, but then the American Disabilities Act came out and a lot of people read that as, Hey, if you're correctable to 2020, you can go fly for a living. That's how old I am, Justin, when, when it was <laughs> 2020. But at the time, the only way you get around that is if you went through the military. And of course the military had to have 2020 vision as well. So my big plan was to go to the air force Academy and so I worked pretty hard, you know, to, to get into a position for that. And I was able to get a nomination to the Air Force Academy. At the time, I was living in West Virginia from, at the time, Congressman Bob Wise, who gave me one of his nominations. Uh, unfortunately, by the time all the materials came to the Air Force Academy, uh, I guess at the time, any, any uh, congressperson could have up to five people. And so what a lot of them will do is sometimes they'll over- They'll, they'll give extras and let the Air Force kind of sort it out. And I didn't make the cut uh, then. It was pretty devastating for me because I kind of had my I worked hard. I got really good uh, you know grades for it uh, and also um, um, got a really good uh, test score. because I worked really hard on it back in the day on the ACT, but just just didn't quite pass their their mustard. So um, they invited me to go to their prep school. They have a prep school there. But I was pretty I was it was a pretty big gut shot for me because I really thought that was my plan, especially when I got the nomination. So I actually took a year off from high school or a year off after high school before college. And I went and got my private pilot. So I would work all week at a golf course, picking balls off of a range. It's funny as that sounds. It was back in the old days. And so then I'd go on the weekend and um, I would go fly with an instructor. The instructor at the time was on strike at Eastern. My dad is a very, very pro-union. And I turned out to be a very, very pro-union person. And so we were, uh, he had his own airplane. And so I took my lessons from him. Uh, Jack Kales was his name, a legendary pilot in the Kentucky, West Virginia area. So I would uh, I would work all week. I'd go pay for my flight lesson and eventually um, uh, got my private pilot. This is back in 89, somewhere in that area. Then at that point, um, I, I didn't know much about North Dakota, but uh, I read a book. I'm not joking when I tell you this. This is going to sound really funny. It's called How to Become an Airline Pilot. It was obviously written by – this is pre-internet, by the way. The internet wasn't invented. There was no browser until 1993. So this, this is, this is <laughs> how right, we Now care. you're dating yourself. I know it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I read this book and it must've been written by a UND alum or somebody associated with the program because it was all about, you know, go to UND, go do this. So, uh, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Montana and I didn't know much about North Dakota. Um, and I just made the decision, you know what, I'm going to go there. It was, uh, most cost effective way uh, to go through and finance it through, uh, you know, public school, um, you know, financial aid. And so I got through it. And um, at the end of it, uh, uh, it was a great uh, four and a half years, met my wife, have a lot of great friends from there, went out into the industry, 
um, and started flying corporate for a small corporation in Minnesota. Uh, I actually flew a pressurized Queen Air. So imagine like a like a King Air, like a like a C ninety, except it has recess. <laughs> So it was, it was kind of a fun plane to fly when it wasn't broken. Um, and, uh, and so I flew that for a while and then, uh, eventually I got a job flying freight, um, and flying for, as a UPS subcontractor, I flew a oh, shorts nice. three, shorts three thirty three sixty if you oh, know what that nice. is. Oh yeah. Everyone knows what a shorts is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> looks, looks like a box with the wings, right? Uh, it looks absolutely. Like a box that came in on you. And it flies just like it looks, let me tell you. Yeah. I would imagine that there's not much, uh, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> many good attributes to a shorts other than they can fit a lot of freight. That's about it. That's what it did. It can yeah. fit a lot of stuff. It can haul a lot of stuff. Um, it, um, it flew though. Uh, it was never rigged quite right, especially with the twin tail ones just never was rigged. Right. So you would always fly through the air kind of at an angle. I, I don't know how to explain it, it was, but it was just, just a peculiar thing, but yeah. So I uh, flew that for a while and then I went to the, did the commuters. Um, at the time, it was really hard to get a job with any 121 carrier. You know, you basically had to have um, 2,500 hours uh, minimum and your ATP uh, with a lot of multi. Um, I was able to get around that. I still had a low, low amount of time. I had had a little bit of a tough experience at um, <laughs> my uh, cargo outfit. I uh had some good friends walk my resume in there and I got hired. I'm not going to mention the company and you'll know why I hear in a second. <laughs> I'm not going to mention the company, but um, walked my resume in there, got along great, got the interview, went through training. Training was really tough because at the time I only had, I'm not joking when I tell you this, I only had about um, 300, 300 350 hours or so at the time to fly the shorts. So it was really tough. It was a really tough training program because I just didn't have a lot of experience, but I got through it hit the line, would go into work at eight o'clock at night, come home at about six in the morning and fly into Louisville every night uh, as the UPS had their big sort there and then fly back the next morning. Unfortunately, about um, three months in, the UPS pilots uh, through the team, uh, through the uh, IPA, that's their union, the Independent Pilots Association, decided to, uh, and rightly so, uh, respect a strike by the Teamsters. So in 1997, the Teamsters went on strike, which were all the drivers, and the pilots refused to fly struck work. So I got a call the morning of the strike from my chief pilot, and he said, hey, the UPS pilots are on strike, so you're going to have to fly some of their routes. I mean, that's a direct quote, by the way. And I said, ooh, I said, well, hey, my dad's a, one, my dad's a UPS pilot, and two, I don't feel comfortable, um, I don't feel comfortable flying, <laughs> flying during the strike. He says, hey, man, we don't have a union. You have no choice. I said, well, to make matters worse, my father was the union leader for the state of West Virginia where I was flying the, the route at the time. So I would literally have to cross his picket line if I was going to ever do. I was going to have to high five my own father as I cross his picket line flying his work. Right. So you write me a letter I, recommendation when I, when I need a job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, this, this, this story gets this story takes so many twists and turns. So I just told my chief pilot, I said, I can't do it. And he says, well, you're going to get fired. I, I said, I know, but I, I can't cross a picket line. I go, I've been raised. My dad was a continental striker. Uh, I just can't, I can't do it. He says, you're fired. He said, the fact is, he said, you're so fired. I don't know what so fired means, Justin, but I was so fired. He said, I'll never work in the industry again. That's a, that's a direct quote as well. So I was like, oh, but and I, you know what? I was dumb enough to believe him at the time. So my uh, my um, my wife, 
God bless her heart. She works at United now. Uh, so she was a pilot and understood the industry at the time. She didn't, ha- she was working as a night auditor. Just gives our, uh, at a hotel, gives, gives our young people kind of an idea of how hard it was to break into the industry way back in the day. But so that was our job. I had about 300 bucks in the bank and um, I'd just been fired. And I'm sitting there going, I wonder if my wife's going to leave me because I'm a loser and just lost, lost this job. And she goes, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I said, I think um, I think I'm finished in aviation. I I guess I'll go back to school and get another degree in something. She goes, well, like what? I go, I don't know. I always wanted to be like a football coach or something. I think I'd be good at that. So I was making plans to do that when all of a sudden I, I called my dad and said, hey, dad, by the way, I just got fired because of your, your strike, just so you know. So he made a call to the IPA Strike Center. And I can't even begin to tell you what forces got in motion, but within within a couple days, uh, the UPS pilots adopted me and literally started sending me checks. I mean, like just money to start. And they started going, and, and 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 I just thought to myself, you know, I could really use the money, but the truth is, you really you really shouldn't get paid for something that you believe in. I mean, that you're doing, you shouldn't get paid to do the right thing. So I returned all the checks. And that made them, uh, I didn't know this would happen, but that made them more fervent. So then they made it their personal <laughs> goal in life to find me a job. That's amazing. It, it was amazing. And they they um, they found this carrier called Business Express Airlines up in the Northeast. Their chief pilot's name was Norm Butterfield, a former Army Master uh, Chief Sergeant. Just one of the most amazing people. He's one of those legendary people in aviation that you come across that you just want to hang out with and just, you know, gain their knowledge and, and just talk with them all the time. Just a great guy. And um, I'll always remember this. He called me up. I'm going to date myself again, uh, Justin. He called me up and left a message on my answering machine. And it says, hey, this is Norm Butterfield. If you can make your way up to New York tomorrow, I'm at LaGuardia. I'll interview you for, you know, a job flying a Saab 340, you know, for at the time it was a Delta connection. So I'm like, oh, great. I try to call him back, but he was already gone. So I just told my wife, I got to get to New York tomorrow. Uh, This is the one time my dad had to help me. I went to him. He was in his pool because, you know, the UPS pilots did quite well, even though they were on strike. <laughs> says, Dad, I, I need I need five hundred dollars for an airline ticket. I only have three hundred in the bank. Gives me five hundred bucks. I go up to New York. This is one of the craziest stories you'll ever hear, Justin. I, I get there and I realize as soon as I stepped off the airplane, this was a really dumb idea because, you know, New York, LaGuardia is a big place. So I'm like, you know, this is really ill-conceived. <laughs> there weren't really many cell phones around. There wasn't much. So I was like, well, how do I find this Norm Butterfield to, to get interviewed? So I, the only thing I could think of is I went to the Delta counter because they were a Delta connection and I was in a suit and I just found these two regional pilots that were just walking by. And I said, hey, I said, do you guys know Norm Butterfield? And they're like, yeah, he's our chief pilot. I said, well, I'm supposed to interview with him today. Do you know where I might be able to find him? And they were looking at me. I mean, imagine if you're just walking around a terminal as a pilot and someone walks up to you and says, Hey, I'm supposed to interview. <laughs> it's just, it's just, they're just looking at me like I'm crazy. And they said, well, the only thing they can think of is on the other side of the field, they did some training there. So they said he might be over, he might be over there. So I went to this Marine air training, uh, Marine, Marine air terminal where they had flight safety and where uh, biz X rented the sim went over there and started looking for norm. I'll tell you, Justin, it was like a bad dream. Every time someone would say, well, He's in that room over there. I'd go there and he'd be gone. You know, it was just a weird situation. So I'm like, man, I'm getting really close to my return flight. I think this is not going to work out. I just blew 500 bucks on a ticket. And, you know, my wife's going to see that her husband's a double loser now for not, you know, closing this. 
But, you know, just all of a sudden I heard his voice, the same voice that was on my answer machine in the other room. I walk in and I said, are you Norm Buckfield? He's looking at me like, you know, who the hell are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Jim Higgins. I'm the one that you left a message of there saying, if I can get up here to New York, you'd give me an interview. <laughs> and he was just shocked. Right. Yeah. So he says, well, he says, did you bring a resume? And so I handed him my resume. He says, all right, sit down. And this is what he said. He said, I now I had about 500 hours. And, you know, at the time, their minimums were 2,500. And he said to me, he said, you're probably not going to get through training. He said, but but were you the kid that got fired for not crossing a picket line? I said, yeah, that that was me. He says, well, I'm going to give you a shot. He goes, but you're, you're probably not going to get through our training. It's really hard training. It was really hard training, by the way. But that's how I got my shot. I went through it a couple of times. I called my wife during training. You know how training is, Justin, especially when you don't have much. You may not know when you don't have much time, but it's really scary, right? I thought at the time I was going to be sent home a few times. I you know, I was flying with my, one of my best friends out there. He now flies for um, uh, NetJets. He uh, he was my sim partner at the time. And the guy was like, you know, Chuck Yeager reincarnated, like the needles never moved. You know, then I'd get in there and it was like uh, riding on a, on a wild Bronco. But, but you know, I got through it and uh, made it to the line. And of course, you know, the line pilot thought, okay, there's this hardcore pro union burn down the company guy Higgins coming, you know, and, and I'm really not like that. I truly believe you can be a great employee and a great union member. I truly believe they're, they're not mutually exclusive. So, so anyway, that I've been talking for a long time, uh, I, I, but that's, that's one of my wild stories of how I got into the industry. That's insane. You've had, you've had a fair bit of adversity to start out. I'd say even so much as, as in the beginning when you worked it for one whole, like your whole goal, no, they had no plan B essentially. It was just to go to the air force Academy. And when yeah. that was kind of thrown out in your face and be like, nope, sorry, because of a technicality or because your governor or whoever it was gave out too many, we are not going to accept you. So you kind of, a lot of people in that situation, it's like, well, I guess I was going to try it. Let me go try something else, you know, but you stuck with it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. You know, um, I, even though my dad was an airline pilot, for whatever reason, he was always on strike or furlough, you know, it was really tough in the seventies and eighties. And so we didn't, you know, I grew up in, you know, some pretty tough places. I spent a lot of my time in a trailer court growing up, you know, getting beat up every day. I mean, you know, not like a lot of people I did. I always had adversity, but uh, for whatever reason, um, I've had a lot of luck and I've had a lot of people just for whatever, for whatever reason, just like Norm Butterfield. But, but I've had others that will just reach down and say, oh, I'm going to give this guy a shot, you know. And um, uh, so I, I have been very, very lucky. Uh, I try to, you know, keep a clean record, try to not burn any bridges. Of course, the company I got fired from, you know, where I was finishing aviation. <laughs> it, one little side story to that. Um, this isn't that funny because I felt bad about this because I know, you know, but but after I had been fired uh, within a day, all the jump seat agreements got pulled uh, for that carrier. <laughs> now. That came back within a week or two because I, I got a call from the from the chief pilot later on saying, hey, man. Um, Tough conversation we had the other day. I, I was I had my chief pilot hat on at the time, but you know, now of course I uh, <laughs> I'm talking to you as your friend, and it was the gutsiest move I've ever seen, man. And you know, <laughs> you know, no hard feelings, right? It was it was a pretty funny pretty funny situation. But you know, that company is doing well. There's a lot of good people that fly for it today, and still still some of the same people were there back then. Just a really tough circumstance. 
you know, uh, the chief pilot was in a tough position as well because we weren't a union carrier. So, you know, it's just a complex situation and you're right. It was adversity for everybody. Yeah. But you learned a very valuable lesson or you knew how to stand up for yourself when someone in that position where this guy on the other end of the phone has your whole career, what you think is your whole career in his hands. And he's going to tell you, I'm going to ruin you. You're done. You're never going to fly anywhere ever again. But you stuck to your values. And I don't want to say you got lucky because I truly believe that people create their own luck and you kept pushing through and you kept wanting to, uh, you kept wanting this and you kept going for it. And uh, you sounds like you're a good person. We've talked on the podcast a lot. So I'm guessing people saw that and they're like, hey, let's, uh, let's make sure we lay out for Jim and let's put him in the position to see if he, he can succeed. Because it's not like they handed you training. He flat out told you, you're going to fail training, but I'll give you a shot because you got some balls, kid. <laughs> you know, that's essentially <laughs> that's what happened. So, but I, you, you were able to pass the training. And training back then isn't what most training is now with AQP. And where, like back then, you had to know what every single rivet on the airplane, electrical system through in and out. I mean, you still know most of the stuff, but we're not rebuilding airplanes like they were back in the day. It was tough. I, I had literally the best instructor. I'm, you know, I still keep in contact with him. Uh, he's on an American now. That guy was the most patient person in the world. And he saw that I was putting too much pressure on myself. I mean, we literally on our third lesson, he's like, hey, I know you can fly. He shut down everything and just had me do some straight level stuff, some turns, just some basic stuff and uh, just calmed me down. And for some reason, was able to get me through training. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. If you want a list of the things that are wrong with me, I'm sure my wife and daughters can supply a long list. of. Oh, yeah. Characters. I'll get her on the podcast soon. <laughs> yeah, she'll tell you the real <laughs> yeah, story. But absolutely. Um, but uh, no, I, I really had some good folks help me. And you're right. I, I try to tell that to all my students. I know it's a cliche that everyone really gets tired of hearing, but you know, I've seen it now because I went on to a big career in the union and I've seen both sides now. Um, you know, it really is about attitude. If somebody comes in and they're not entitled and they're, you know, they're willing to work hard and put in the work and respect people that have gone there before and respect the people with whom they work, you know. The airlines and any any professional organization, they're going to get you through training. I, I'm telling you, they would much rather have a person with a great attitude that people want to spend time with in the cockpit for 10 hours a day than somebody that maybe is the best pilot they've ever seen, but is a complete jerk, you know? And so um, it really is about attitude. That, that's a big lesson I learned is just do everything you can to, to get along. I, I happen to like people, probably like you, Justin, I, I can go up to a group of people and talk to them. And, and, you know, it's always interesting to me. I can always learn something from them. So perhaps that helped me, but, but uh, that's the big thing is just be a good citizen, a good human being. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people want to do well for people they like. Right. So say, even if there's, some kind of situation where someone is, is leaving from a job and they're like, Hey, do you have anyone that you even mind? It could be your old CFI. They'd be like, Hey, my one student was a great guy. was a great person, great girl, whatever. Let me yeah, go ahead and yeah. throw them in the, in the hat. Where if you were a bad person, uh, a lot of people want to look out for their name. They don't want to be just recommending anyone because <laughs> then like we all know this is a very small industry and who knows if you screw up a company by giving them the worst pilot they've ever hired, then they might remember that down the line. And I doubt, I mean, they'd price to hire you in any other capacity, but they won't forget that. I promise you over a beer, they will be like, why did you recommend them? And <laughs> yeah, that's always going to be like a stain on your name. Yeah. Why, why did you give us that Higgins kid? Yeah. Right? What the know, heck? That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And that's, that's why I'm, you know, my biggest advice to everyone is to, to, um, you know, never burn bridges, just be a good human being, you know, never take anything for granted. 
you know, and I'm sure you have similar experiences to that. But, you know, the funny thing is what, what happened at um, Business Express Airlines. So I made it. I made it through IOE. I had a great IOE guy that, you know, I missed every call out. I was out of Kennedy. Right. Here's a kid, a kid with um, I think I literally had 495 hours in my logbook is what I had. And my first takeoff was out of Kennedy behind the Concord was two in front. And then there was a 747 and me. And so my IOE check airman was, you know, again, just a spectacular human being said, Hey, let's just quickly go through the call outs, you know? And so I just, you know, I rattle them off, right. Cause I'm fresh out of training, you know, they're crisp. We get on the runway and um, I don't think a single thing came out of my mouth until we get to about three, 400 feet. <laughs> and he just said, you know, Hey, we need to really work on those uh, call outs back there. And I just, I couldn't apologize enough, but I was just awestruck because it was the major leagues, right? I know it was just a soft 340, but I was flying behind a Concord and a 747 for gosh sakes. You know, I'm sitting there going, this is just in New York Kennedy. It was just, it was just amazing. And, um, but, um, yeah, that's uh, it, it, this uh, group that um, there's just people out there that will absolutely help you. But but a funny thing happened at Business Express um, because I had this reputation of a guy that did the one man strike and got fired for not crossing a picket line. I immediately got identified for all these union roles. So one of the first thing that um, I did when I came off probation is I became, you know, what was called an LEC rep, which was basically just like a, would be equivalent to like a local shop steward, right? So I had, um, I had Bangor, Maine and Albany, New York were the bases that I represented there, right? So, so that was interesting. And then um, Business Express was acquired by American Eagle, now Envoy. So during that merger, I ended up going over there, became a captain over there on the Saab, um, and then uh, became the chair of their negotiating committee. I don't know how that happened, but uh, <laughs> that happened. And then before too long, right after 9-11, actually, um, I became uh, their MEC chair. So we had about 2,900 pilots. It was a very, very tough time. Uh, we were obviously furloughing people like everybody else. And um, that's when I took over on the union and, and did that for about a year. And it was um, very, very difficult time, very, very interesting time. It's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Um, I, you know, I know some people maybe don't think union people, and maybe some union people don't. But uh, I can tell you that was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. There was never a time that my phone wasn't ringing. Yeah, I bet. Uh, that's a inter- very interesting time. I feel like you could write a book about <laughs> yeah. being on, in charge of a union during that time and the calls that needed to be made and kind of the decisions that were made between company and union or just company in some instances. But uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. It's uh, When you were going into your airline career, uh, even before your one-man strike, was your goal – to eventually get into the union, kind of follow dad's footsteps, or were you per, were you completely happy with just flying? That's it. I was happy with just, with just flying to be completely honest. Um, I will tell you, you know, um, it was, it was tough. I was an FO for probably three years. And I know a lot of people had to be an FO for a lot longer, so I'm not complaining, but it was getting pretty monotonous, especially with the same routes up in the Northeast. When American Eagle purchased us, you know, it opened up some more opportunities and, um, you know, the reason why I really got involved with the union, and this is no knock on others, um, I, I was very reluctant. Uh, I, was, I was talked into every union position I've ever, ever had. And I'm not just saying that. I, I really had no desire to do it. But the problem is, and I hope people that are in this situation out there listen to what I'm about to say. The problem is there are people that very much want union positions. And, and many times, not always, but many times they're not really the people you want in those positions. You know, I was considered kind of a moderate, not not a, you know, let's burn the company to the ground, but also not a pushover. At least that's how I perceive myself. 
Um, and uh, I really did feel that you could find ways to work with the company and find ways to you know make it work and represent your pilots. There were some issues that were I'd go to the I'd go to the gates of hell for captain's authority would be a big one. I, I would go to the gates of hell for that, you know. And then there were some issues where I maybe I'd still I still fight for the pilot, but I'd call them privately and say, man, you know, I, I I'll do it because I have a duty of fair representation. It's part of the uh, you know, RLA. And and so I'll do it, but I think you're off. I think you're wrong here, but I would still, still go through and do that. And so it was, um, it was just one of those times, if you let other people get into that position um, and they're in it for the wrong reason, uh, I just think that it's, 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 things can really get out of hand quickly. And I think there's been many examples of that in the industry. Yeah. I mean, what a company's whole goal would be to try to get rid of their union, right? Like that'd be the number one thing they could ever do, have full control over everything and anything in the company. Yeah, the the best the best modern way to get rid of a um uh, <laughs> shouldn't even tell you the playbook management playbook. I don't know why they don't do this, but um, you do see this at some of the carriers. But if you have a really good union official that is very very good at advocating and you know very very uh, very very strong, um, you know, and they're more or less a thorn. You know, one of the best ways to deal with that is to hire them, right? Bring bring them over as <laughs> some kind of a VP of labor relations or something. I mean, I, I personally had a rule against that. I, I know it sounds funny, but but I know that it happens quite a bit. And that's one of the best best ways to, to counter that. And, um, you know, it almost always works because the pilots are like, oh, well, you know, that Justin, he's a great guy. He was a great union leader. So I know when he's over there inside the machine, he's going to really fight for us. <laughs> so it usually it usually works for a while, but. You never know. Well, what's crazy is when you are kind of in the company. So say, say hypothetically, you uh, were running the chair and then they hired you. Well, let's just right. say, let's just say at American, just to make it easy. Sure. Uh, you're going over to American. Um, you know, the first year you're probably still very much like in your roots of like the, the union, the union, the union, fight, fight, fight. But, you know, slowly over time, as you're more removed from the union and from the line, you forget what it's really like on the line <laughs> and you start thinking oh, like, well, these pods are just complaining. Like, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, they're like, well, has it always been this way? And they're like, yeah, it's always been that way. And then you kind of just kind of, kind of jump on the bandwagon a little bit, you know, the, the farther you get removed from working every day on the line, you're going to get removed from kind of that thought process and the, the pro union thought process, I guess I should say for or terrible way to explain that. But yeah. <laughs> No, I, I completely agree. You know, what's interesting about that uh, again, and then I'm sure a lot of people would agree with this. I've always been a big believer in both the union folks and uh, even uh, management, at least the chief pilots up, all of them need to be flying on the line. I know that that's really tough, but without that experience and that connection, you, you're right. It goes fast. You know, even in my one year as MEC chair, um, and you know, I left on my own terms, I, but I knew this was not something I wanted to do forever because I'll tell you, Justin, I really started getting comfortable. It was really fun being the MEC chair after a while, you know, you'd be, you'd go to these expensive dinners, you'd meet these Congress people, you'd go and meet all these, all these amazing people, you know, you get all these overtures towards, Hey, we'll get you on it, you know, wherever someday, you know, and you're sitting there liking it. And meanwhile, you forget sometimes who you're representing. There's all these people that are just, uh, getting beat up, uh, you know, flying through all these routes, doing all this stuff. So, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in term limits for union folks. And I'm also a big believer in paying them to keep them from, um, coming over. But I also think they need to fly the line. They just have to, because you lose that connectivity. 
it just makes you a different person. Totally agree. And you kind of just echoed what I was saying about how easy it is to kind of get lured the other way. You know, someone just buys you a nice steak. We're pilots. We're cheap. We're like, dang, all right, cool. You're my best friend. You'd never do me wrong. You know, it's like, sweet. Right. This is right. awesome. <laughs> no, it, it is. It, it is. And, and you know, it's also, I mean, you get into the point where, where you can, especially if you go on full, uh, full-time flight pay loss, you know, what people have to remember is the pilots are paying for that, right? So for everyone that's got uh, all their time off sitting in an office doing union work, which could be very important at times, there's, there's no doubt you need time to do that. But there's going to be some poor pilot somewhere that's got to pick that up, right? Yeah. And and then also the dues that everyone's paying, that is going to pay you directly for what you're doing. So, I mean, it's um, you really got to be a good steward. You got to have the right um, the right mentality about it. And, and you know, certainly don't want to get you know, drunk with, with power on it. You know, we, we used the Wilson polling center at the time. I don't know if we still use it, but that I, I was a big believer in that. I don't know that they do that anymore, you know, but we would try to pull every few months and just get the pulse of the pilots and see where they're at with things, how they felt about things. Again, this was kind of, you know, the internet was out there by now, but we didn't really have a lot of online you know, polling capability. So we still had to do rely on people calling, but that was really important to make sure that, uh, that um, we were keeping in touch with all the issues and not missing anything. Yeah. Our union, um, we're in negotiations right now and our union, they do phone surveys, they do online surveys. They pretty much did any kind of survey you could possibly fill out. They did. <laughs> so we have filled out a million surveys trying to figure out. So that's still going on strong. Yeah. And that's, I would tell everyone that's really important to fill that out and also talk to your union reps. I mean, I know sometimes they, they have to talk to quite a few people, but that's quite frankly what they signed up for. And so it's really important. And, you know, everyone's got different issues. Some people it's, uh, you know, quality of life issues like commuting or furlough protection or, or whatever the case may be, or, or medical, right? Some people maybe focus more on retirement or, or just pay. But, you know, it's important that whatever those messages are, they get out there and so that uh, everyone feels it. Absolutely. Let's take a break from today's podcast to hear from our sponsors, RAA. Did you know there are three action steps you can take to protect yourself in a volatile market? Volatility in the market can make the best investor a little nervous and take actions that they know they normally wouldn't. It can be stressful and you may be thinking, shouldn't I be doing something though? Well, the answer is yes. The first and maybe the most important action you can take is to resist the urge to make decisions based on recent market movements alone. This is tough but will pay off in the long run. Next, if you're feeling stressed in this market, it may be time to review your risk tolerance and your ability to take a loss in downturns. We all like to think we can take the risk up until the point where we actually see fluctuations in our portfolio. And lastly, get a second opinion on where you stand financially so you can take a longer-term view of the market in your financial plan. Not sure where to start? RAA can help. Founded by Pilots for Pilots and with four decades of financial planning and investment management experience, RAA is intimately familiar with unique benefits, risks, and career timelines that pilots face. Whether you're early in your career as a pilot or you spent years flying the line, RAA is here to help navigate your financial journey from takeoff to touchdown. For more pilot-specific planning tips, go to raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. And now back to today's episode. Um, your time as MEC chair, uh, kind of a double-edged, your two-part question, but uh, what was the hardest decision you'd ever had to make and what was kind of like the, the most profound and most like... Uh, respectable or like the, the hill you die on, like something like you really achieved uh, working as an MEC chairman or even just as a union officer? Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, those, those are two great questions. Um, I was tested early and often the, the American airlines uh, playbook, um, you know, under, uh, under Crandall all the way through RP 
was to test their leadership. A lot of people became CEOs and, and high-ranking folks that cut their teeth on labor on the management side. And it was generally considered, you were generally considered strong if you're kind of rough on us, right? And so um, they didn't take it easy on me from day one. The first thing is I was 29 years old at the time. And so I had that thrown in my face all the time. My very first meeting with the company, you know, the president of the company at the time, uh, his name was Peter Bowler, a Harvard-educated guy. He had one of those rings they give to people that are in those super secret societies at Harvard, you know. And, I mean, it's just like a who's who's list of, you know. So, you know, they try to impress you quite a bit. So you show up at the table, you know, on the first day and, and and you know, they, they try to – I mean, it's not manipulative, I guess, but it's just more of maintaining their posture – and, um, you know, it's, 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 um, it was tough. I was tested early. I was asked to do things early. One of the first things I was asked to do my first early tough decision, literally day three or four in the office, I was told, Hey, if I would just sign this letter, I could keep about 20 people from getting furloughed, but I would have to give up, um, a scope issue, uh, that, you know, we were, we were kind of fighting and, you know, I said no. And 20 people got furloughed on um, because of that. Right. So that was tough because that's 20 people that are now looking to feed their families. And, you know, if I had made the other decision, but it was, it was, I remember that in particular being a pretty tough decision. Um, But the one that I was, um, the one that I was uh, uh, probably tested on the most was, uh, I don't even know if I can tell this. This is, (laughs) I don't know. I, I might have to think about this one. This was a, this was a tough one. We were in a really, really, really tough arbitration. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't know. Let me let me think about this for a second. So, uh, what had happened was, I think I think the statute of limitations is expired. This is twenty some years ago, so I think I can tell the story now. I I don't know. We'll see. So the honest, whenever somebody says I think the statute of limitations is expired, you know it's going to be a good story, right? Absolutely, Hopefully, a good story. Yeah. Grabbing some popcorn. Um, let's go. So this box shows up at our office, the MEC office. And it was, um, it, it was, the label had been pulled off. It was FedExed over and the label had been pulled off. And I guess at the time what FedEx did is they opened the box and they found something with my name on it and the address, right? So they sealed the box back up and sent it to me, right? Cause everything had fallen off it. So I get this, I get this call and there's like, Hey, there's a box here for you. I said, I said, okay, just put it, put it in my office. So I went in there, I looked at it. And we're in the middle of a very expensive arbitration, scope arbitration. And it literally was the contents were um, it was it was meant for the lawyer. It was meant as a legal document for the other side. And it was witness preparation stuff for for their witnesses. And in my opinion, and I'm not a lawyer, so I could very well be wrong here. But in my opinion, it was very um, unethical because to me, it looked like it was instructions to witnesses on what they should say. Now, someone else that is in the know on this could look at that and disagree with me. And so I'm, I'm saying that for a reason here, Justin, just, just just in case. But my opinion was it was witness preparation documents that, that maybe cross an ethical line. So now I called our ethics attorney up at ALPA and they're like, well, you got to turn that over to the other side. So I turned it over to the other side and they said, well, did you look through it? And I said, well, listen. It was addressed to me. I opened it up. I looked through it. And as soon as I realized what it was, I, you know, I stopped looking through it. Like, well, what did you see? And I said, well, that's, you know, that's privilege. That's between me and my attorney. So it led to a big brouhaha. But it was a very ethical thing, a very ethical conundrum, because here you had stuff that was borderline unethical, but 
the lawyers will tell you, I got it through a means, not that I did anything wrong, but I got it through a means that I shouldn't have. So anything I learned from it, probably I couldn't complain about. And that was ultimately what I was, what I was told to do in that case. But that was a really tough one because had I been able to use that the way I wanted it in my non-lawyerly way, I thought it could have really helped our case. But, um, but um, I was told I couldn't do it for, for ethical reasons, even though <clears throat> the other side wasn't being too ethical in my, my mind. And now, again, um, I'm not an attorney, so maybe it didn't cross lines. You know, we I, I followed legal advice once I was told what to do with it. But but that was a tough that was a really tough one. Uh, I still to this day, uh, we ultimately lost that that arbitration and it really hurt us quite a bit at American Eagle. Uh, in fact, there's been a few times in my life where I cried, uh, you know, not not that there's anything wrong with crying. I should cry more. <laughs> but I'm sure my therapist will tell you. But but um but uh, that was one. I really felt bad about that one and really second guessed myself if I if we handled it right, if the strategy was correct. The one time I can tell you I can point to that that really helped me is there was a there was a pilot who uh, got furloughed out in Los Angeles and um, she had uh, become pregnant and then got furloughed and then her kid got some kind of a, a really bad medical condition. And, you know, at the time she wasn't covered by the medical care. And so American Eagle at the time decided to give bonuses to, to people because they made some profit. And so the quite, the thing is you had to be an active service of the company. And I, I knew this pilot, the local reps brought, brought her to my attention. And so I, I went and asked the company, I said, look, I said, this is the right thing to do. She could really use that bonus money. Here's her kid. Here's her, this is what we need to do. And the company's like, you know, we get it. We're humans too. We want to help her. But if we do it for her, how do we know you're not going to turn around and say this is past precedent, right? And so I just looked at the, the VP of Flight Ops, who I really respected, and I think he respected me. I said, you've got my word. You've got my word that we won't do it. So we shook hands, and they were able to send that bonus money to this particular pilot. And I know it was just one pilot out of the 2,900, but when people, you know, and, and you know, to, to the union, maybe it wasn't this huge victory that we, you know, crossed the finish line on. But to that particular pilot, it made all the difference in the world. And she was able to help her kid. And I felt that I played a pretty big role in that by using my personal credibility and and that. And again, these are nuanced stories that, you know, I wish I could say, well, you know, we struck and we brought them to their knees. You know, we we did pick at the shareholders meeting once, which was fun. I could tell you about those things. But these are the things I tend to remember, the, the ones that, um, you know, really helped out. And and I was a small part of that, but but it was a part that I think brought it across the finish line. The other thing I think that um, uh, I think about that helped more pilots was I was the first signatory to an ASAP program at uh, American Eagle. At the time, it was really controversial, right, because no one was really sure if um, if an ASAP program was was the right thing to do or not? Were pilots going to get fired over it? You know, it's like the early days of flight data monitoring or FOQA. You know, nobody really knew how things were going to get used. But it was a leap of faith. We took it. I was the one that signed it. We had a big ceremony with the FAA and with the company. And, you know, obviously history has shown that that was a good thing to sign. Yeah, absolutely. FOQA and ASAP, they've uh, they've done a great job of, of finding trends of what's going on and, and figuring out training to, to figure out a way to kind of negate that trend and, and make it a positive trend rather than a negative trend. Absolutely. Yep. No, there's, there's no doubt that those are some of the things I remember. I, I certainly had, uh, I'll tell you one thing, and I might've mentioned this to you before in previous conversations for those considering, you know, a career in trade unionism, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, every day you go in and it's going to be arguments, uh, and it's going to be debate and it's going to be tough decisions. And 
you know, people's lives, their livelihoods are on the line, you know, and, and you've got to do your best to make the best decision for everybody. But sometimes you're going to make a decision that um, disadvantages others. Um, and, you know, and you need to do the best you can. So it's not for the faint of heart is what I'm trying to say for people that want to get into it. There's going to be days uh, where you feel like um, you're going to feel horrible, like you're the lowest of the low. And then there's going to be days where you get that win and you're just like, uh, man, this is great. I, 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 the MEC chairman before me, who I really respected, you know, we kept getting beat at the table because, you know, there was a big pilot surplus. Everyone wanted to get hired. And so every time we went in, we really didn't have much leverage to do much of anything. And he did tell me, I remember that he goes, you know, someday he goes, I don't know when that day is going to be, but someday we're going to get a big giant hammer and that hammer is going to be leverage that we're going to get from something. He goes, I don't know where it's going to come from, but we're going to be able to go in and we're going to be able to get everything that we want to get for the pilot group. And of course, now we know that as, you know, the shortage, at least at the regional level, I know, I know my Alpa friends disagree with that term, but, but times have definitely changed as I look at some of the salaries that uh, the regionals are paying, at least the bonuses that they're paying. And, um, I would love to be a negotiator nowadays or a labor union leader nowadays because my feeling is not every day is a loss anymore, you know? Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, you say regional, but look at Delta. They just got the new contract too. A lot of people yep. are happy about that one. Some some pretty life-changing money for a lot of pilots. There's no doubt it's a great time. I do just, I hate to be that guy, but I do want to caution everybody, you know, whenever uh, whenever times are great, and things are going well. Everyone tends to think it's going to be like that way forever. And I do think the airlines have learned to make money in tough markets. So, so maybe we'll be a little more insulated than in the past. But whenever when things are really dismal, right, and everyone's getting furloughed and, and there's, you know, some really tough, everyone tends to think that's going to be the way it is forever. And the truth is neither of them are correct. You know, we're going to continue to cycle. You're already seeing a little cooling. I would call it a light cooling of FO hiring at the regionals because they're truly uh, there's now a captain shortage whether it's induced through, you know, poor planning on training or just people getting hired at the majors. Um, I've heard in some places it's uh, line check airmen that um, that uh, leave. Right. And then you have to replace the line check airmen. Those are really hard to hatch. And so whatever the case may be, you are seeing a little bit of cooling at the FO level at the regional. Still healthy hiring, but not like it was even a year ago. Yeah. I mean, they're they're dealing with issues they never thought they'd ever have to deal with. So they never plan for them. Right. Like. Uh, whether it's line check airmen not leaving or not having enough training slots for pilots, like it's just, uh, it, or not having enough airplanes or not, sorry, not having enough pot. I can't talk, not having enough pilots to fly the airplanes they have. Like they've never had to deal with this and however long they've been, they've been in, in business. So the last couple of years have really made interesting holdups for either training or hiring in a time where you're trying to hire every single person you can possibly hire. That's right. Yep. And I think the airlines have learned now that they're going to try to retain as many people as possible because there seems to be, you know, we haven't even hit the crux of the major retirements. Um, we are seeing some some slowdowns. You know, FedEx announced that they're suspending hiring for the rest of this year, which is a pretty big, pretty big news. But of course, that's a very specific case having to do with, you know, freight, you know, because, you know, it was artificially inflated during the pandemic. So they did really well then. But but, you know, yeah, we are starting to see that and we are starting to see, you know, uh, managers are believers now. Uh, CEOs believe now that there are issues with human capital in general. I mean, the maintenance side is another one that uh, people don't talk about very much. But those those folks, are they don't come by very easily either. And so there's some big challenges here that have to be figured out. Yeah, for sure. Going back to you kind of as an MEC chair hat, putting that back on. Um when you are, or even if you had the opportunity now 
to kind of go to bat for your company or go for your union, for your pilots. Um, what's your goal? Is it 50% plus one? Is it 70%? Like what, like obviously 50% plus one is what the company wants, right? They want just to get the bare minimum to agree to it and hope that they can win. But like as someone that's up there in charge, like you can't make everyone happy. There has to be kind of like a, when you're presented a contract, you're like, well, I think this is probably like a 69% contract or 90%, you know, like you have a number. Is there like a sweet and spot number that the negotiating committee and you guys all have kind of come up with? Like, I think this will pass by 70% or is it kind of just, you don't think of it that way? No, that's definitely in the back of your mind. Whenever you're negotiating, whenever you're considering some kind of a collective bargaining agreement or some kind of a side letter, I can tell you that as a general rule, you want overwhelming support for it. The 50% plus one is is no good. That's not gonna, just not a good thing for for the labor. And there's there's two there's two things you really want to see if you're a labor official. If a strike vote's ever taken, uh, you want to see a very large number, 95 plus percent of the eligible voters saying, yes, we authorize a strike if there's no no agreement or whatever the case may be. That That's really strong. Those are tough ones because if you do that vote and it comes in at 60 percent, 55 percent, that's a strong message to the company saying, oh, even if they go on strike, they're not going to get very many people to support it. So that's really important. And even those of you that are that might be diehard, you know, pro company, anti-union folks, that's the one time for just appearances. I don't care what you think. That's the one time you want to say, yes, I authorize the strike because that is really important. So that, that's the first step. The second step is uh, ratification, member ratification of the CBAs. You know, 75%, I would say, is a success. Um, and of course, if you got it higher than that, uh, that's even better. You're right. You're never going to please everybody. You know, at a regional airline, the goals are very different, but they've changed even in the last 10 years. There was a time when nobody wanted to retire at a regional airline, right? But now that's not the case. Now there is a case where there's a fair number of people that uh, uh, want to retire there. So as a union person, you want to make sure that you keep that in mind. So you are going to work on things like retirement and, you know, lifetime travel benefits or, or, or whatever the package might be for that person, because they're going to call this home until they retire. It used to not be that way. Even when I was in the union, um, you know, when I was a, a negotiating a chair and the MEC chair, you know, we, the vast majority of our pilots did not plan on retiring there. So I would go for other things like, um, you know, quick pay, right? You know, I want to get really good pay or, you know, better hotel rules or, whatever the case was, just to make your your time there, uh, you know, more pleasant, right? And that was the idea anyway. But now that's changed a little bit. So you really have to take into account all of your constituencies and all the different interests. Yeah. And another question would be, how do you know you're not giving up more? You know, like, how do you know this is truly the best offer? How, <laughs> like, I, it, that's just like in my mind, it's like, I, I wouldn't believe that they're telling me the truth. Like, all right, cool. We have your financials, but it's like, I'm sure you could figure out a way, pretty clever way to hide some money, you know, if you really needed to, it's like, how do you know you're really passing the most you can possibly pass? That's a great question. There is absolutely a quantitative capability that the unions bring to bear. There is an EFA department that's economic uh, and financial analysis department at ALPA these are, you know, PhD level economists that will absolutely analyze the financials of the company. So when you go in to sit down with the company and negotiate, uh, they also have economics people on their side. And so, 
you you have a pretty good idea of what the company can afford. It doesn't mean that they're going to do it, but you have a pretty good idea of what that point is. Um, there's a little bit of a, a feel to it as well. Uh, I remember once I was in a negotiation. I was uh, I wasn't chair. I was just on the negotiating committee at the time. But the company made the mistake of saying they couldn't afford. We were going. This is when the uh, 44 seat ERJs, uh, the Embraer, what was it, the 140s, came on property. We had to sit and negotiate a rate for that. And Comair had just negotiated a, a 44 seat CRJ rate, so we wanted Comair plus one percent was was what we wanted. And the company basically said, "Oh, we can't afford that." And so we said, "Okay, well now you have to prove it because you just you said you can't afford it, so we'd like to see the books." They eventually had to change to, you know, we we just don't want to pay that, which there's a difference between the two, right? And so so uh, the problem is then when that gets out to the rank and file, they, you know, hey, the company says you're not worth what a Comair pilot's worth. It's a tough talking point for the company to handle. So, you know, those are some of the things you can tell. Um, and just so you know, the people on the company side that that negotiate these contracts, they have they have a lot of pressure on them. Right. So every decision they make, uh, you know, can have, you know, big altering consequences for the company as well. And even more recently at Delta and United and American, we have seen the CEOs directly interject in the negotiation, the negotiating process, either ordering their folks to get it done or, or approving things. That's also pretty unusual because back in the day, that usually didn't happen. It was it was left you know in house for the labor professionals to handle. But now we're starting to see the CEOs uh, buy into that process a lot more than we used to see. So it's it's much more serious. And um, um, uh, you know how do you know that you're getting the best deal? It's a combination of the quantitative analysis, your feel, and then also what's going on in the industry and what's you know what, what what's going on. And sometimes it's just looking at the person in the eye. I, I'd love to tell you that that personalities don't play it into this, but that's not true. You can get, you can absolutely get the wrong people at the negotiating uh, table and you can get the right people and same with the company. You know, if you are just an obstinate person that thinks you're at a used car lot and you're going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to buy low and sell high. And, and that's how you approach this. You're going to get it handed to you because the company, uh, these are professionally trained negotiators in many cases, they are no dummies. And they go to all the schools that teach them how to do this. You know, we, we go through training, too, in the union. But, you know, um, that being said, uh, you're going to a lot of people have a misconception of what happens at the negotiating table. One of these days we can talk about the intricacies of some of the newer ways of negotiating. There's there's new ways out there. Interest based bargaining is a big one. At the time, I wasn't a, believe, a big believer in it, but I've seen lately maybe it has generated some good collective bargaining agreements. Um you know, there's more traditional negotiating. We can talk about some of those nuances sometime, but that's probably a topic in and of itself. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> that would definitely be a topic in itself because that could fill up a whole 45 minutes or an hour conversation. Uh, right. But I do think that'd be really cool to kind of analyze the negotiation. The, wow, can't talk. <laughs> that's what happens when you got a little kid, you're running low on sleep. <laughs> <laughs> when you analyze negotiating kind of tactics and you, you mentioned how the negotiators on the other side, they are, highly, highly trained, some of the smartest people you ever talked to. And I would be willing to bet there is some sweetener for them to give, to make you, to sell the worst deal possible to you. And they probably get some kind of kickback. So it's in their, almost in their best interest, probably, I'd imagine, to, to really fight hard. Yeah. But back in the day, that was for sure. Now that, um, now that we've entered more of a free agency type mentality, you know, I don't know if they offer spiffs anymore to uh, negotiators, you know, some kind of a bonus for certain achieving certain things. 
But uh, I know back in the day they had to have because you would see it at the table. People would fight for some things that you thought weren't as serious. But for some reason, the only thing you can conclude sometimes is they were getting incentivized for that particular item. (laughs) What is, um, yeah. What is the hardest thing as a union leader for when dealing with the company? Is it a company that, I don't want to say isn't being truthful, but it's kind of like all talk, but not really doing anything. So you guys are are talking to each other and you're like, Hey, we need to fix this. Like, yeah, we need to fix that, but nothing ever comes out of it. Or is it a company that just flat out ignores you and and doesn't want to, doesn't even want to acknowledge that there's a problem? Great question again, Justin. So here, here's the situation with that. Um, in every collective bargaining agreement in, in the industry, there's a section called management rights. And it's a very important section for management to have in there. And it's also part of the status quo of the Railway Labor Act, which, again, we could talk about uh, the status quo mandate of the Railway Labor Act, which we could talk about in much more detail later as well. But but what it basically says is anything not in the agreement, uh, we have the right to manage our company and make decisions. And it sounds like, okay, well, that's just a bunch of words. It's, it's really not. What that basically means is, is the company has the leverage. Right. And, um, you know, it really depends on one's philosophical or political outlook or economic outlook, you know, and and what do you think is fair and who should control the means of production? Right. That type of thing. But the truth is right now in the United States that that is primarily controlled by the companies. Right. And most people would probably say that's the way it should be. So as a consequence, it's almost always an uphill battle, or at least it was maybe in the last few years with pilots with with some of the hiring and, and this. Maybe it's changed a little bit, but I will tell you. It was always an uphill battle. So you would always need more things than what the company would need from you. So for every five things you would need, you know, um, they would really only need one from you, some relief on something. So you never really had the leverage. And so you had to just do your best to say, hey, you know, the pilots aren't going to like this. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means maybe our performance won't be as good. You know, are you threatening a job action? No, I'm not threatening a job action. You know, it it was all of these, all of these things. And so it was just tough. The company usually had the upper hand. They usually had the leverage. And you always knew it was an uphill battle. And you knew that you would lose the majority of the things that you went after. And that's not for everybody. If somebody's used to, to you know, being successful in their in their lives with things, that's not it's it's tough to be told no quite a bit, you know. And um, that that's what I would say is the toughest thing. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that as well. It's a it's a very interesting dynamic between company and union. And I, I truly I didn't really have this belief until I actually worked at a, a company in a union, but a company with a union, but a, a company and a union, they both get each other that they deserve. If that makes sense. Like the union gets the company they deserve and the company gets a the union they deserve. And when you kind of take yourself out of that situation or you're outside looking in, like maybe me looking at American or me looking at Delta and their relationship, it's like, it's easier to see uh, where things are going wrong, but it's harder to see when you're in that fight right now, because one, a lot of people tend to make it personal and they forget that this is as much of a business transaction as there possibly can be. Right. It's it's not personal. I mean, maybe there are some personal instances I'd imagine, especially back in the day, things get, things get pretty heated and you really want to stick it to this one person and be like, no, screw that guy or that girl. But 
It is business, right? So they're trying to get as much money and work you as hard as possible. And we're trying to work as little as possible, get as much money from them as possible. Uh, leverage is, is starting to swing to, toward the unions and has heavily swung toward the unions more so than it ever has before. But uh, it's still not as easy. As you can see, Delta just passed this huge contract, but still United is fighting. Still uh, American is fighting. My company is fighting for, or my union is fighting for for more pay as well. So it's... Uh, it's they still have leverage, but it's still very hard to get it done. They're, they're, you're at, you're absolutely right. It's 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 um well as I mentioned, it's just not for the faint of heart. You want the right person in there, a person that can you know keep plugging along, be half cheerleader for everything, but also um, be a realist and uh, do everything they can. You know there are as we've talked about before, there are companies and unions that have learned to work together quite well. And we obviously have examples of ones that, that don't work together very well. And the results are spectacular, right? Either catastrophically spectacular or wonderfully spectacular. But but we've seen it and we have seen companies that are able to, to, to make that work. Um, and, you know, it's going to be an interesting next two to three years. We don't know what's going to happen with the economy. Uh, you know, it's it, right now we should be, if you listen to some of the uh, forecasters out there, we should be in peril, but for whatever reason, we seem to be resilient in our economy. So, and certainly the airlines uh, aren't feeling anything and they're starting to open up more uh, international routes. So, so it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what happens with the ongoing hiring, the lessening of the leverage. And, um, and yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be good to sit there with a a carton of popcorn and just kind of watch what happens. Absolutely. It's a, I mean, like, like you said, we've been in a recession or uh, the Great Depression 2.0 is supposed to be happening for the last, like, what, two years? <laughs> so, it's, yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's tough. It really is. It is. Well, we got well, sidetracked a little bit from your story. Uh, I want to finish that up really quick. And are you going to say something real quick? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, not not at all. Um, yeah, it just, uh, you know, uh, the airlines have definitely learned how to make money when times are tough. And maybe maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But the, I just wanted to finish up your story a little bit because I wanted to touch on how you got to, to North Dakota. Um, so I, this is, was it MEC chair, stressful, I need a new, I need to do something else, kind of ruin the love of flying, or is it kind of just like a natural progression, um, family stuff? Uh, I just wanted to, to go back, give back, and teach. Sure. Well, um, this is going to sound really shallow, but um, we were going through another uh, furlough and downgrade. And uh, I was a I was a line check airman at the time, although I was mostly doing union stuff, so I didn't get a chance to do too much of that. But I was facing a downgrade, right? And I was like, oh man, I just I can't go back, can't go back to this downgrade. I you know I couldn't afford it. We had a house and everything like that. So I went to the company and I said, you know, can I take an educational leave of absence? I've got an opportunity up at the University of North Dakota. I can go get my master's degree, and they let me teach on the side. It'd be about two years. And, you know, I don't know if it was good or bad, but they couldn't say yes fast enough. They gave me that, that leave of absence like you wouldn't believe. And so I made my way up there and I kept my number. I kept my seniority number because I was thinking about coming back to the line. I, I really enjoyed the flying. I enjoyed the people. I didn't think I was going to come back and do any union work because I was kind of getting burnt on that a little bit. Plus, I'm just a big believer in getting new people in there from time to time. You just don't want the same people in there. So I uh, I went and also I started teaching a few classes on CRM and aircraft systems. And all of a sudden we had all these, you know, bright eyed students who weren't bitter at the world and they were excited and they just had all this energy. And I was, you know, I was like, man, 
this is great. You know, I used to stand in front of a hundred people and they were all pissed off about, you know, this, that, and this. Now I'm standing in front of 30 and they're all happy to be here. You know, it was just a much different outlook on life. And I remember thinking to myself, this is a much better lifestyle. My wife and I wanted to have kids and um, certainly you could make it work. We have lots of friends that have made it work in the industry, but she wanted to eventually become an airline pilot, which she has uh, herself. And so we just thought, man, with this kind of lifestyle, I can still kind of keep one foot in the industry. So after about two years, I got my master's degree. I went to the department and said, hey, I'm willing to resign my number. And you know, at the time, the number was picking back up. I mean, I'd be a, a decent, uh, you know, low, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, just off reserve, but below reserve 737 captain at American had I stayed on because of the flow that they had today. So, you know, I do go back and think about that. But um, but I'm happy I made that because it's been a good 20 years I put in here. You know, I've now launched a couple businesses that, I, that are so far have been very successful and I'm still able to teach, uh, you know, the next generation. I never get tired of that. I never get tired of talking to people about aviation and, you know, their passions. Probably some of what you get to do uh, on your podcast here, Justin, you get to talk to people that are really passionate about the industry. And I'll tell you, it really it really keeps my interest going. And maybe it's selfish. Maybe I sap their energy, but I really do get a lot of energy from talking to all these uh, college age kids about aviation. Well, it's cool. It's it's kind of, like you said, it's kind of nice to, because I, aviation can kind of suck your soul out a little bit, you know, like um, yeah. it's a grind. It really is. Like it can, sometimes it's a trick to really think back and be like, I, I used to love this, you know, there, obviously you go through stages, right? Like every, you go through seasons, not every, Every tour, every flight is like that, but there are definitely times where you're like, man, this kind of sucks. I'm like, why, why didn't <laughs> yeah. I just like become a real estate agent or a doctor or whatever, <laughs> anything else? <laughs> right. Well, one of the things that I uh, I always wanted to do, I got a chance to instruct in our CRJ Sim at UND for a while. It was kind of fun. And, you know, it was usually when someone was in their senior year, usually their last semester. And so what I would do on their very first lesson was we'd take a second. I'd have them sit down before I powered up anything. Like, I want you all just to sit there and look at what the next 30 years of your life is going to look like. Now, this is just a CRJ. You're going to be flying much more sophisticated and advanced things. But then I'd power it on, you know, and the PFDs and the MFDs would come on and all the lights would come on. And you'd see the we had pretty good visuals. They're much better nowadays. But still, you know, and I'd put them someplace cool like, you know, New York or San Francisco or something. And I'm like, this is what all the years you put in here and all the grind that you've gone through. Look at to where you've gotten to. And now this, you're getting a peek at what the next 30 to 35 years of your life's going to be like. You guys have made it. We just got to get through this course, but this is what you get to see. And I'll tell you, I had a lot of good feedback on that because, um, you know, it, it was a grind. And I, I tell people all the time, people say, well, how hard is it to become a pilot? The truth is, if you look at some of the numbers that AOPA have kept and some of the numbers we've kept internally, you know, the, from somebody that starts out in a program, whether it's collegiate or an FBO or wherever, you know, the numbers are dismally low that ever. I mean, it's it's less than 10 percent will ever make it to a professional flight deck for people that start out. Some will get their private pilot and they'll stop there. Some you know, won't even solo. Right. But it's a really low percent. And um, what does that tell you? It tells you that, um, uh, you know, is flying fun. Of course, it's fun, but it's it's a grind and it takes a lot of hard work. But it's worth it when you get to the end. But it does have a high washout rate when you look at it industry wide. Yeah, I think it's also just the obstacles to get to that kind of that delta job, right? Like sometimes people just eventually reach their limit of how much they can take and how much they can put in. And uh, that's different for everyone. Some people are crazy, like the ones that are at 
made their job, their dream job or where they are now. And they just kept getting beat over and beat over and beat over <laughs> and kind of beat down essentially. Um, but, yep. um, it is a grind. It really is. I mean, every single pilot you talk to, I'm sure they have one or two stories where like, man, I almost just like totally stopped. Right. And, <clears throat> right. When right. I was training, when I was starting my training, it was in kind of, kind of close to 08. So it was 2010, I want to say. And, uh, it wasn't easy to get a job, man. It was not easy. And flight instructors were not making 50, 60, 70 grand. They were making 10 grand working full time all the time. So it was not like, why would you want to do that? And kind of like you said, when you're in the down, the down spiral or sorry, when you're in the, the valleys, you're really not going to be, you you think that valley is going to go on forever. When you reach the peaks, you think that peaks go on forever, but it's not the case in aviation. Uh, And I, sometimes I I really want to know if they wish that they didn't quit. I I know one, he was my first flight instructor, took my first ever flight with him. He quit right after I got my my private pilot license. Maybe it was me that made him quit, (laughs) but uh, he, I think he went on to be a fireman, which great rewarding career. Nothing wrong with that at all. But with how much money pilots are making right now and what his friends are doing, I, I do wonder if there is regret that maybe they walked away. Um, I, I mean, I can't blame them. Maybe it was a lifelong dream. Maybe it was a goal of his. Like, I, I don't want to like call him out for that, but it really, there really is something to sticking it out in this industry because it seems to pay off in the end. Yeah. And, you know, I know people like that too, that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, and, and, you know, maybe they had like a personal circumstance or whatever that necessitated that, but, but nonetheless, it does make you wonder, you know, especially you in that time frame, because things were not looking very good, right? You know, <laughs> so it was tough. And you know, you talk about those flight instructor jobs. You were lucky to get a flight instructor job back then. You know, it was it was it was really tough. So so yeah, it, it, it you know, but it's like anything. If you if you ever talk to a doctor or a lawyer or anyone that made it in their profession and are now making a living in that profession. You know, they'll tell you that there were there's a lot of self-doubt. I mean, I remember my first, of course, I had very low time. I remember that very first job I had at the regionals. I just couldn't believe how hard the training and all the information they wanted you to know. I just, you know, I'd gone through U and D and I thought, you know, they would have prepared me. <laughs> I mean, you know, no knock on U and D, but I just I remember, you know, and I here I grew up in a family with it. You'd think I would know a lot of the stuff. I remember my partner going, Oh yeah, tomorrow's V1 cut day. And I go, oh yeah, wow, cool. I, you know, at the time I had no clue what V1 cut day was. I, I had to call my dad and say, Dad, what's V1 cut? Oh, it's you know, engine failure on takeoff. <laughs> you know? I, was like, I mean, I was just hanging on to the tail trying to keep up with training. But I mean, I didn't know what that stuff was. And so, you know, it was um, it was a um it, it was tough to make it through. And you know, I know everyone's everyone that's made it, I tell people this a lot too, you know. Sure, there may be some people that we don't see eye to eye with, but but almost every person I've seen that has made it to a 121 flight deck um, or, you know, fractional or any professional organization, you know, they've all got a great story of what they've had to overcome. And, you know, they're amazing stories. And then the other part is um, they're usually pretty good people for it. You know, I just I look at the people I, I've flown with and the people I know, I'm still just like everybody, I'm still really good friends. With a lot of people I flew with 20 years ago. I mean, you pick up the phone right now and carry on conversations like there's no tomorrow. Just, uh, it's just, it's just a good group of people to be with. And, um, you know, everyone that makes it there, they deserve it. They, they made it there. They jumped through the hoops. They jumped over the hurdles. They did whatever, press whatever button they were supposed to press when, when the profile called for it and they made it, you know, and, uh, we have to really, uh, recognize that. And I also mentioned too, to people that are in programs like at Ohio state or UND or Embry or wherever you're at, um, 
you know, you're surrounded by other people, like-minded people that also have CFIs and double I's and MEIs and all these ratings, and they're all working toward the same goal. So it's not, maybe it doesn't feel that impressive, but you know, the truth is just to even get your CFI, that's an impressive accomplishment in the environment that where everyone's at. Oh, sure. There's, you know, 50 others like that, but you know, go out and look around in the country a little bit. That That's quite an impressive accomplishment to even get that far. And so I, I often tell younger people to reflect on what they've accomplished to this point. Yeah, they may not quite be in the right seat at Delta or United or wherever their goal is, but they're well on their way. They're past the halfway mark and they've already accomplished, you know, so much, you know. And so um, I think that's an important message we have to keep carrying. Yeah, and I also yeah, think it's we can kind of end on this, too, but I think it's very important to remind anyone in the training environment that this is more than likely the last time you're ever going to fly a single engine piston. Right. right. Like right. you right. may think that the, like you may be looking at those jets and you may be like, dang, I can't wait to fly that. It's true. That's going to be great. You're going to make a lot of money. Um, you're going to be in a lot of hotels, but you're going to eventually be in a 350 an A350 or a latitude. Yeah. And you're going to be looking at that, uh, that really cool J3 cub and be like, dang, I'd want to fly that. But right. it's also crazy to think about. It's like, you know how the, a big barrier to getting into aviation is aviation is stupid expensive. Well, also a big barrier for airline pilots to get back into general aviation is aviation is really expensive. <laughs> Even when you're an airline pilot, yes. you still kind of come up with excuses like, oh, it's too expensive. I can't go back and do that. You know, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> well, I, my wife and I have this pipe dream. Someday we'll buy an airplane and fly it around. And then I start doing the economics on it. And I'm like, you know how much an annual costs now? I yeah. mean, it's just, it's just crazy, but, uh, but you're exactly right. And, um, you know, it's funny too. We also sometimes change our perspective. I don't know who told this to me once, but you know, during the first part of your career, you're doing everything you can to put, to put flight time in your logbook. And then once you get hired and you're out there, you're doing everything you can to not put time in your, except unless it's a J3 cub, right? Yeah, right. Real, so <laughs> exactly or if you need psc turbine multi-turbine and get to the right. airlines like back in the day when that was gold <laughs> oh remember those yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy well jim hey that's it i uh i don't have i, I usually do rapid fire section but we'll, we'll get that on the next time so we can uh entice people to come back but uh a cliffhanger should i say <laughs> but that sounds good thanks for coming on we'll uh we'll get together here soon and we will uh we'll do another state in the industry but it's great just talking to you and hearing more about your story it's fascinating, which I, I knew it was going to be very much great stories. Uh, and I, you did not let us down. So thank you so much. Well, thanks, Justin. I appreciate the time and thanks for listening to it. Yeah, anytime. Have a great time. All right. See ya. See ya. Aviation that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Stay tuned for, should be two weeks from now, I believe. We will have another State of the Industry podcast. If you would like your questions answered, reach out to me on Instagram at PilotThePilot or send me an email, justin at pilotscoffee.com. Let us know any industry questions that you'd like to answer and we'll make that happen. Hope you're all having a great day. And as always, happy flying. <laughs>